Today's guest is Andrew Brandt. Andrew is one of the most respected voices in sports business. He spent time on the agency side, working with athletes like Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing. But Andrew was also vice president of the Green Bay Packers, where he spent a decade negotiating player contracts, managing the salary cap, and handling all football-related business operations. In this conversation, we discuss the Green Bay Packers, negotiating NFL contracts, Brett Favre and Aaron Rodgers, publicly owned sports teams, Deshaun Watson's next steps, legal issues in Washington, and current opportunities in sports. I really enjoyed this conversation with Andrew, and I hope that you do too. Today's episode is brought to you by Whoop, the personalized digital fitness and health coach. Monitor your recovery, sleep, training, and health with personalized recommendations and coaching feedback with Whoop. Train smarter, recover faster, sleep better, and now feel healthier with Whoop and their all-new Whoop 4.0, the latest, most advanced fitness wearable on the market. The all-new 4.0 is smaller, smarter, and designed with new biometric tracking, including skin temperature, blood oxygen, and more. The device also features an all-new smart alarm, designed to wake you up feeling refreshed and ready to take on the day. Plus, it was designed with their new Anywhere technology, so you can wear it with their new Whoop Body Sensor Enhanced Technical Garments, boxers, shorts, compression tops, leggings, and more. Just remove the band from the device and slide it into your garment of choice, and you're discreetly tracking your daily activity with Whoop. I've been wearing Whoop for over a year now, and it's drastically improved the way I approach fitness and think about my recovery. Not only is the device comfortable to wear, the app packs a ton of health information into a simple display that's easy to understand. Get the all-new waterproof device for free when you sign up for Whoop 4.0 membership. For any members, if you have six months left on your membership, you can upgrade now and get the 4.0 for free. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Next up is Public Rec. Are you looking to upgrade your baggy sweats? It's time to check out Public Rec. Their best-selling, all-day, everyday pant is the perfect combination of indoor comfort and outdoor style. Myself, along with thousands of others, are wearing these, and trust me, they live up to the height. Finally, a more stylish alternative to sweatpants that are way more comfortable than jeans. Now, your favorite lounge pants can also be your go-tos for work, happy hour, and the gym. After a year at home, they're definitely the pants you need, now that you need pants. Public Rec rarely discounts, but right now, they have an exclusive offer just for my listeners. Go to publicrec.com and use promo code HUDDLE, H-U-D-D-L-E, to receive 10% off. This episode is also sponsored by CoinCloud. Did you know you don't need a bank account to buy crypto? CoinCloud makes it easy to buy or sell Bitcoin and 30 plus other digital assets with their digital currency machines. It's the most convenient way to make a transaction. With thousands of machines across the country, there's no need to connect your bank account or wait in lines. Plus, they offer live, 24-7, US-based customer support. Simply put, CoinCloud wants to make it easy for you to get involved in crypto. Get $50 off in free Bitcoin when you buy $200 or more at any CoinCloud machine and use the promo code Joe. You heard that right. That's free Bitcoin. For details, go to coin.cloud slash Joe. That's coin.cloud slash Joe. And don't forget to use promo code Joe for free Bitcoin. So Andrew, thank you for doing this uh, today. You are one of the people, I'm a big fan personally, and you are one of the people that I always point to uh, for people that are new to sports business or interested in the industry. You have a very unique perspective uh, that I value a lot. And part of that I think comes from, uh, you've spent, you have your law degree, you spent time on the agency side, uh, you were vice president of the Packers, and now you're on the media front. So before we dig into some of the current events and some of the madness going on in the NFL today, uh, maybe give people a little overview of kind of your career and what kind of perspective you bring. 
Yeah, thanks, Joan. Thanks for having me. I'm a fan as well, as we talked about before we came on. Mutual Admiration Society, and you and I are in the general same space, but we focus on different things. And it's really nice that someone like you brings this perspective. My background is really one where I've been in a lot of different angles of sports. I've been fortunate. Growing up in Washington, D.C., diehard Washington, as they were called then, Redskin fan, which I know we're going to talk about. Um, I went across country to Stanford, and you know, it was a new experience for me, a kid from D.C. that had never been to the West Coast, kind of finding my niche at Stanford with a lot of California kids. Took a while, but I finally kind of found my little area there, and I studied public policy at Stanford and didn't really know what I was going to do next. I always had a yen for sports. I was a big-time sports fan. I kind of grew up kind of in a way that wouldn't surprise people where I was more less sort of less interested in the players and who's good and who's bad and what team, you know, what team's going to win the Super Bowl and more like, hey, why are some of these teams really successful and some not? Why are some organizations always at the top and some not? Even as a kid, that was something that intrigued me. So when I got out of Stanford, you know, again, not really knowing what else to do, I did what sounds a little weird, but I just said, okay, I'm going to go to law school. Why not? And I had no real interest in being a lawyer, but I figured it couldn't hurt and it could only add credibility and build my resume and all those things. So I did. I went back home to Washington, D.C. and went to Georgetown Law. And funny story, first day of law school, I was driving around Georgetown looking for law school because I didn't know. I'd grown up there my whole life, but I didn't know that Georgetown Law School was not in Georgetown. So it turned out it's in Capitol Hill. And I went down to Capitol Hill and started law school. So my little first break, Joe, was there was a firm in D.C. It's no longer called ProServe. And they represent athletes. They represented tennis players. I was a tennis player growing up. I played in all the local tournaments in D.C., and they kind of knew me. And I ball boyed the big pro tournament every summer that they ran. And I said, come on, let's just give me a job, an unpaid intern in law school. And they took a chance. They said, OK, we'll give this kid a, a chance. So a lot of my time in law school was interning at ProServe, doing whatever they asked. And really, I started on the tennis side. And that could mean like getting strings or getting shoelaces or getting a certain kind of gut for these tennis clients. And that was my role. I got to the end of law school and I had a chance to sort of go with, quote unquote, a real law firm. And I decided not to. You know, it was a tough decision because at age 25, 26, most kids, obviously, everyone would tell me, hey, you know, go hang out with athletes. Don't hang out with lawyers. But I had to realize even at that time. I'm kind of turning my back on the law, right? I'm turning my back on a secure career with more money, more security, eight years to partner, life picket fence, the whole thing to go into sports. And sports, as everyone should know, is a very volatile business without a lot of security. Having said all that, I did that. And a few months into working for ProServe as a real employee, I transitioned because I saw that tennis was a little frustrating for me dealing with, you're recruiting like 13 year olds. So really you're dealing with parents and you know everyone thinks their, their player is, is Roger Federer. And, and I understand that that's what parents are, but it was tough. 
I saw down the hall a guy named David Falk, who had signed Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, all, all these great players. And I said, OK, can I go work for that guy? Can I stay in the firm and go work for that guy? And they let me because there was a need. And I tell young people all the time, you're, the road's never linear. It's always going to be meandering paths. So I went to, to David and got to work with basketball and got to help out Michael. I certainly wasn't Michael Jordan's agent. I was doing tasks for his agent, David Falk. But here's the thing, Joe, I saw another path within that path because David had a few football players. And, 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 and I said, no one's paying attention to them because we got Michael, we got all these great basketball players. I said, I'm going to do that <laughs> because that was this path I saw that could give me an opportunity to break into this field. So I look at me, I never played football, obviously a huge fan, as I mentioned, Redskins, as they were called growing up. And I said, okay, cool. So I started representing a bunch of football players. And over the next six years, early in my career, beginning of my career, I was anywhere from three to five to 10 to 15 NFL players. And I was a football agent. Fast forward, I'm doing a contract with the Minnesota Vikings that run by a guy named Mike Lynn, who became chief operating officer of something called the World League, which was the first iteration of NFL overseas. We finished the contract. He looks me up and down. He says, Andrew, do you speak Barcelonan? And I said, is that Spanish? He said, yeah, it turned out it wasn't. He said, how would you like to be the first general manager of the Barcelona Dragons? I said, what's that? He said, it's a new league. We're starting overseas. It's going to be awesome. We're looking for young rock and roll GMs to run these things. So how old were you at this how point? How old were you at this so I was 29 Okay, and I looked at it and I said, okay, young, single, I liked representing players, but this was too cool to pass up, you know, run a team at age 29, albeit a team overseas and a minor league team. And I accepted, not really thinking it through, but I accepted that was six months from opening day. I had no players, no coaches, no staff, moving to a country with no understanding of American football whatsoever, as I found out. So I said, what do I do? They said, hire a coach. I said, who do I hire? The, the NFL people. They said, well, this guy, Tony Dungy, he might go, or Pete Carroll. I talked to these guys and they're like, Andrew, this sounds really cool, but no way. I'm not going to Spain. I'm not derailing my career. I said, I get it. I go to Boston College. They just fired this coach named Jack Bicknell. I'm like, great. I love you. You're hired. He says, great. I got assistants. I said, hired. He said, I got trainers, video hired. Do you want to meet them? No, they're hired. So instant staff, then we go to Florida, we poke and prod and we test 800 players. I don't know who to pick. I ask NFL people, they tell me who to pick. I pick 80. We have training camp five days in Winter Park, Florida. I'd have to tell 40 of the 80, they can't come. Some were Spanish. <laughs> and then we fly off instant football team. Now we're 10 days from opening day, the Barcelona Dragons, and we've sold like 200 tickets to a 40,000 seat Montjuic Olympic Stadium. And I'm like, what do we do? What do we do? And so the biggest marketing moment of my career, Joe, was actually at age 29, 30. I got a meeting with the general manager of football club Barcelona, one of the greatest brands in sports. And I said, okay, what do you guys do at halftime? He's like, what do you mean? What do you do at halftime? What do you mean? What do you do at halftime? Would you let us run the ball, kick the ball, throw the ball, and the announcers say tomorrow night, Montreal Stadium, 
Barcelona Dragons because they had 100,000 people. We only wanted like 10,000. So he finally, you know, he hemmed and hawed and he said he agreed. And we get out there in full regalia and we throw the ball, kick the ball. He says, tomorrow night, come on and see the team. I hope he said that. <laughs> Thank God tomorrow night. The next day was a monsoon. It was terrible rain. We had an owner over there. He said, we shouldn't play today. I'm like, no, no, we have to play. 18,000 people walked through that turnstile and it was amazing. I'm like, oh my God, this is so great. But then the football didn't look so good. No one's scoring in the first half. We take the second half kickoff. We hit our tight end on a seam pattern. He breaks three tackles, touchdown. I'm jumping up at that first touchdown of the, of the world of the NFL year. The crowd is like polite golf applause. Yeah, totally different. And then our kicker comes and kicks the extra point. They go nuts. They go nuts. And I'm like, oh my God, Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore. So long story short, this happened over and over again. They cheered at the wrong times. They did the wave the entire game long. They never got it. And more importantly, more importantly, they didn't want to get it. They, I told our staff, we're done selling football. Forget touchdowns and receivers and quarterback. They don't want to know. They don't care. They want, I said, well, they said, what do we sell, Andrew? And I said, we sell three hours in America. That's what's going to drive this audience. So I hired two Miami Dolphin cheerleaders, come teach the women out of there how to dance. Uh, you know, I hired Frisbee dogs and flamethrowers and, and, and rap music every time out and hamburgers and hot dogs. So we made it an event. I'm spending too much time on it, but it was two seasons NFL Europe stopped, came back later without Barcelona because we could never get traction over there. I went back to the agent business. I was in Boston, a company called Bob Wolf Associates. I represented their football, basketball, baseball players. I had a client named Ricky Williams. He was going to be the watershed client of my career. I had him as a baseball player. He turns out to be the best thing in college football. The first guy with dreads, most exciting player, gets the Heisman Trophy. I got him. This was going to be my life. I got Ricky Williams. And of course, I see guys hanging around him like, Rick, what's up? He says, well, they work for Master P. I'm like, who's Master P? He's a rapper. What are you telling me? I want to work with Master P. I said, okay, what's that mean for me? He says, I want you to work for Master P. Do my contracts. I'm like, me and P. Yeah. So I'm like now telling my wife, I got a wife now and a baby. I'm like, I think I'm going to work for Master P. <laughs> you know, that was my option. So this is sort of the serendipity of life. The same day, same week, within a day or two, I'm getting calls from the Green Bay Packers. Not at my office, but at my home. And my wife's like, Green Bay Packers keep calling here. That's like, all right. I got one client there, a third string quarterback, later went on to play 19 years named Matt Hasselbeck. I'm like, I can't deal with Hasselbeck. I got Master P, I got Rich. They're like, we're not calling about Hasselbeck. Why are you calling me? Our coach, Mike Holmgren, just went to Seattle. I'm like, great, sorry. He took the guy that ran our operations. Holmgren took him to Seattle. I'm like, okay. Andrew, how'd you like to switch sides? And I said, what? Come run things here. And I said, Green Bay? Yeah. I said, why me? You deal with a hundred agents. Why me? Well, they said, you know, you have a nice way of dealing with people. You know, your way around this stuff. Hasselbeck loves you. It's just a way we can get more agent friendly, hire an agent. I'm like, let me go talk to you and go to like Green Bay. First time in my life. 
It's like 10 degrees. I'm like, mm. I asked this question, Joe. I really asked this. I said, don't take offense, but do I have to actually move here to do this job? <laughs> I said, no offense taken, but yeah. So I did. And now I moved my family from Boston to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And uh, for 10 years, I think the easiest way to describe what I did is kind of I was the fulcrum, the balance point between the business side and the football side. And sometimes the business side, the business side is very long term. Like, how are we going to look at the end of the CBA? How we, in my day, what, what happens when Brett retires? How are we going to deal with this stuff? And the football side is very immediate, right? Andrew, when can we get this guy signed? Can he be on the field today? Can he be at the game Sunday? All those immediate things. And sometimes it was the voice of caution to the football side, and sometimes the voice of reason uh, or aggression to the business side. But I think every organization needs that person. I did all the player contracts. I did all the salary cap management. I dealt with the NFL on all issues. I dealt with all the player issues, whether it be fines or suspensions or discipline, dealt with all the agents and all those issues. And how do you feel that as coming from an agency background, it obviously sounds like the Packers wanted that when they when they reached out to you and hired you. How do you feel oh. that that impacted your ability to do the job with the Packers? I assume it was a pretty big help having that experience as an agent and then relating with other agents when they came in to negotiate deals and talk about player fines and everything like that. It was invaluable to have that experience because, as you said, when I got on the phone with agents or they came in or when I visited them, I used road trips for the team a lot of times to visit the big agent in that town. We'd cut to the chase. You know, all the BS that goes on in negotiations where before you get to the key points, we could get past that because I knew what they were going to say. And I'd said it myself, just kind of all the selling points you do around negotiations. The one thing with that, Joe, I learned. Here's two things I learned. And I think everyone has to show frailty in their careers. When I first got to the Packers, I'm like, I'm going to prove to the world that's how great a negotiator I am, right? So I had a couple situations with agents that weren't that experienced. And I'll say it, I got over on them. I got over on them. And the players signed bad deals and long-term deals. And I'm thinking, hey, look at me. Look at me. Look what I did. I saved this organization millions of dollars. It was bad. I learned to never do that. I ruin relationships, not only with the agents, but more importantly with the players. The players knew I got over on. And they were coming back and like they wanted new contracts and they, they kind of looked at me side-eyed. And later in my career, you would think I'm a tougher negotiator. I became an easier negotiator because I realized the importance of relationships and leaving things on the table and not going for every dollar and giving away even better contracts than what's sort of a midpoint for players. So that was a real lesson. I, I was going to say, one of the things that I have become fascinated with, and every time I talk about it or write about it or tweet about it, other people seem to really engage with it, which is uh, athletes negotiating their own contracts, right? Yeah. And we have seen uh, a few different people do this. One of them was DeAndre Hopkins last year. And I only bring him up as an example because he s seemed to get a great deal, right? I think he had, uh, yeah. it was two years, 50 something million dollars. And it was the largest guaranteed money for a non-quarterback in NFL history. So no trade clause, everything seemed like a great deal. And I had written about it and I said something along the lines of, you know, if he would have charged the normal agent fees of 
you know, two, three, 5%, he would have saved X amount of money and people loved it. And then I cautioned and I said, this is only applies to a certain number of people, right? Like not, not everyone can do this. Uh, so I'm curious kind of in your experience with the Packers, one, did anyone do that, not bring an agent and try to do it themselves? And then two, how does that change the power dynamic between you and the player and the agent when it comes to negotiating? Another learning experience that didn't go well. <laughs> First players would say, Hey, Andrew, you're cool. You've been an agent. And we're in such a fishbowl in Green Bay. It's different than any other market because everyone knows each other. You go out on Friday night in Green Bay, you see half the team no matter where you go. Um, I knew players socially. My wife knew their wives or girlfriends. The kids knew each other. So they said, yeah, yeah, let's do it, Andrew. And I'm like, cool, fun. It turned out to be a bad experience. And two things. One, I learned the value of agents. Moreover, as buffers. Because I'm telling a guy he's not worth what he thinks he is and it's raw and it's emotional. And I'm saying, you know, it's not that simple because a player would say, Hey, Detroit or Dallas or Denver or San Francisco paid this guy X. I'm better than this guy. Pay me more than X. And players see it very simply. And when I say things like, well, that team's got a rookie quarterback, we got Brett Favre, highest paid player in the league, or I say things like they were one year away from free agency or two years away from, they don't want to hear that. What they hear is that you're saying, we don't like you or love you as much as that team loves that player. And that's hard. So agents have a real role in framing to the to the player what the team's saying in a good way. So I learned from those experiences that they were not comfortable. And I lost, I just mentioned I lost relationships with getting over. I got, I lost a couple of relationships there and the wives and my wife, you know, those were tough. Yeah. Yeah. I always think it's interesting because, uh, the better player you are when there's less kind of, uh, you know, friction between the, the gap of where you think you are and where the team thinks you are, you probably have a better chance of doing it with that angle. Um, but, but on that same note, I'm curious, like, uh, how long did you spend with the Packers in total? 10 years. 10 years. Okay. And that was from uh, 2008? 1999 to, to 2009. So it was all Brett. Yeah. And, and, to, and then we, of course, made the transition, yep. which was a messy divorce, which was, you know, again, it's so topical now because they're doing it again with Aaron and Jordan Love. But uh, I experienced all that. I, I think... What I remember most about my latter years in Green Bay was managing that, which no one sees. It's all behind the scenes. No one ever sees that. In other words, Brett saying to me all the time and his agent, Andrew, do you know what it's like to come into work every day and sit with your replacement? It's no fun. And Aaron's camp would say something like, is he, you might as well, you know, is he ever going to play? Like Brett's never going to retire. So what are you going to do? And then you just have to be calm and say, Hey, you know, just, just hold on. We'll, we'll figure this out. And they're doing it again. Right. So now Aaron wants to know, I think he wanted to know all off season. What's the plan. And if you're just going to move on to love next year, why don't we do it this year? And I think that was ultimately the timeline was really the issue with Aaron and the team. And, They've obviously come to an agreement about that or come to an understanding about it. But these are tough things. You know, people ask me all the time about negotiations and numbers and cap. And listen, a good calculator, you can you can handle that. 
but it's personalities, it's emotions, it's egos, it's making feel people feel good about their position with you and with the team. That's really challenging. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think Green Bay, uh, it's obviously one of the most famous and uh, probably I would say the coolest destinations from an NFL fan perspective, uh, kind of the allure of it and everything that goes into it and the history. One of the things that I think is fascinating about Green Bay specifically is that it's publicly owned by the, by, uh, you know, the fans. So did that have any impact on uh, kind of your role and what you guys were doing? I'm, I don't know if there was a, a, uh, a stock offering when you were with the team. I'm not sure exactly what years it happened. Uh, but what kind of role did that play into your guys' decision-making uh, and so forth? Yeah, it's a unique structure, as everyone knows. No owner. There was a board of directors that met every quarter, and they were more like, you know, just rubber stamping. Uh, I would give a cap presentation, and they would kind of say, yeah, great, you know. One thing about my cap presentation, one of our board of directors would sit in there and shake his head every every time I presented. That man's name was, is Bud Selig, who at that time was part owner of the Brewers. He's on our board. And I said, Mr. Selig, why do you keep shaking your head whenever I talk? He goes, because, you know, cap, you know, we don't have that. We can't compete like you can in Green Bay. And I just felt like I and I felt the enormous magnitude of what I was doing with Packer Nation in managing the money. There was no one above me, Joe, to say, hey, whether I did a $10 million deal or a $20 million deal to say, hey, that's good or that's bad. So I felt great autonomy to do that. We had a great personnel side with Ted Thompson and John Schneider and Reggie McKenzie and John. All these guys became general managers. But we stayed in our lane and we mixed when we had to mix and they trusted me and I trusted them. It was a great working relationship. But yeah, I felt like what would the shareholders do? I really felt working for the Packers was like working for a public trust. And I had to keep in mind the shareholders. I remember doing a contract with an agent in New York City and I stayed in a hotel and I was going to meet him for a 10 o'clock meeting. And in my 10 minute walk or 15 minute walk to meet him, I didn't see any Giants gear. <laughs> I didn't see any Jets gear. I saw some Knicks gear. I saw two people in Packers gear. And I'm like, oh my God. You know, it's just like, it's everywhere, Packer Nation. And I felt it. I did. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Uh, I was going to say it helps when you're winning also, right? I think you guys had, when your time there, you were uh, the best record in the NFL during that time period. So that certainly helps. You, the Super Bowl came after you left? It did. It did. It was, it was an 11. I had left two years by that time. But we only had one losing season, and uh, our consistency was great. I really uh, felt lucky to be there. And I listen, I know, and Packer fans should know, how much a franchise quarterback means and how spoiled we were. You know, this is this team has gone through 31 years or whatever it is of franchise quarterback play. Someday it's going to end. <laughs> That's tough. That's tough. It's a tough pill to swallow at some point. But it was truly unique. Uh, and I got to say, to get a little personal, Joe, some of it in the first four, five, six years was really just so fun. You know, everyone knew me, knew my family. You check out at the grocery store asking about the team. You pump gas. They're tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, how about that, you know, Donald Driver contract you're working on? 
but towards the end, I just, it, it was enough. It was enough. I had to get out. I just felt like I had done every contract. I had dealt with every player situation and I wanted some more diversity for my, myself, my family. And I couldn't walk out of my house and not talk Packers. And it was just, it was too insular. And so to move on, I know we're, we're sort of stopping through my whole career, but I left a, a very prestigious, very high paying job with nothing really in mind. I'm nothing really certain except knowing what I wanted to do. I wanted to get into two areas, which I've done for the last 10 years, media and academia. Because I thought there were real voids in both for someone with practical, experiential insight and perspective. I didn't know how I was going to do it. I didn't know how. But I knew I had some talents in speaking and writing that I could pull back the curtain in these two areas. So, I, so what happened? I moved to Philadelphia. I looked at my wife. I said, after moving her to rural Wisconsin for 10 years, she got to pick the next stop. She's from Philadelphia. So we ended up in Philadelphia. I started teaching right away at Wharton. I knew a guy named Ken Shropshire. had spoken to his class as a guest. He said, come teach sports business. I'm like, okay, but I'm going to do other things. And then I found myself in the right time, right place. And I know I tell young people, they're like, oh, you're so lucky. I know, I know, but try to put yourself in those positions because 2011 lockouts, strikes in football, basketball, hockey, ESPN, Fox, NFL Network, all looking for someone to explain this to a country. And here I was. And I, I chose ESPN because I thought it would give me a lot more platforms besides just one or two shows. And it worked out well. And I was there for seven and a half years, breaking down what I think are very complex topics and hopefully bite-sized digestible pieces for the audience. And that led to writing for ESPN. Then I had Peter King from Sports Illustrated say to me, hey, we're putting together a little band to do this football-centric website, MMQB. Would you join? That was 2013. I've been writing a business of football column there ever since. I actually told ESPN, hey, I want to stay with you for TV, but I'm going to go write for your biggest competitor. <laughs> I didn't say it that way. But they said, yeah. And so I was Sports Illustrated, ESPN. Then in 2017, 18, I'm sorry, I started a podcast, as you know, The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. And just to top it off, uh, I started a newsletter because I thought, there's got to be a way where people can find not only my column, my podcast, and thoughts about a lot of things, even beyond sports, because I'm into a lot of fitness and life hacks as well. So I put this together, and it's going well. And I think like you, I found a little niche there where I, I looked through my subscriber list before I came on with you, and it's just people from all the leagues, NHL, NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, from some dozens of teams from people from marketing companies. And of course, obviously people that are into learning more about sports than they see otherwise. And that's been going really well as well. And then to finish it up on the academic side, Villanova had an endowed program in sports business and law. They came to me and said, will you, will you run this? 
And I first said, no, go get an academic. And they said, we, we, you know, they went away, they came back. We don't want an academic. We want someone with a name and a national voice to run our program. And that was music to my ears. So we worked it out and I've been running a program at Villanova for the past eight years. Uh, so that, that's about, I think everything I'm doing now, I can also talk about. Uh, no, well, it's, uh, it's obviously really, it's really impressive. And, and I mentioned this to you earlier and I, I know I've shared, uh, in the newsletter and, and with other people that follow me on Twitter that I really enjoy your stuff. And I think, uh, Part of what you did was very intelligent on the side of like, hey, I'm going to go get into media now. There's no one really doing this really well. It worked out uh, really well when it comes to the lockout and everything like that timing wise. So you've been doing that for uh, about a decade now, do a really great job at it. But when it comes to the actual uh, specifics of your analysis and everything like that. I, I laugh to myself sometimes because you're usually the most level-headed person in the room, right? And I think of that as uh, in today's media landscape, a lot of what has happened, it seems, is people uh, are credited and rewarded for giving very outlandish takes, right? And kind of like the wildest scenario possible, maybe even if it's only 1%. And uh, I always laugh at some kind of, uh, of your responses sometimes because it's just the thing that sits you right in the face, right? And it says, you know, this is probably what's most likely going to happen, 95%. Uh, Maybe it takes six months, maybe it takes a year, whether it comes to legal situations or with NFL owners, et cetera. Uh, and I think that you have found a great space in there of people that really trust and value your opinion based on the experience that you have. So kudos to you on that. And it's it's been really uh, fun to follow. And I, and I suggest everyone certainly goes and does that themselves. Thanks, so, Joe. I mean, that's where I try to find my, my niche. And Twitter's responded really well. I still haven't mastered the Instagram game and haven't even approached TikTok, but Twitter's really nice for my nuggets of insight, as you mentioned, that try to lay it out in a balanced, nuanced way. And for people who say, well, these social media are just about the, the loudest voice or biggest opinion, I hopefully I'm living proof that that doesn't have to be the case. You know, the example with Aaron, of course, the media was breathless all off season. Aaron Rodgers will never set foot in Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers is going to retire. Aaron's going to do anything besides the Packers. And I just said, no, <laughs> no, no, he'll be at the Packers. And now I'm steadfast that he won't be at the Packers in 2022, which, you know, a long way off. But I understand it. I have unique insight into that organization, into that player. I didn't. And what I'm most proud of is I don't use sources. I really don't. I'm not trying to brag. I just don't use sources because sources all have agendas. I just use this. <laughs> I'm like, no, yeah. you know, and a lot of things, and I do my translations, my translations. This is what they're really saying. So I appreciate that. And I guess what I'm most proud of is I got purged from ESPN in 2017 when they, you know, moved on from 150 people on air that, that one day. Um, and this is something I'm real proud of. My Twitter count went up <laughs> after that. You know, most people, they're on TV, especially in a, in a big way. That's how they roll up their social well, media. People following. probably wanted to make sure they could still find you, I assume, right? right. So they, they obviously right. value the It became a bigger platform for me yeah. once I was off the ESPN. Yes. Correct. That's great. So we, we have about 15 minutes left. What I would love to do uh, is just run through a few of the, the recent and relevant news uh, across sports leagues and, and just get your opinion on kind of each situation and see uh, where we're at and kind of where we go from here. So 
the first one I would like to discuss is Deshaun Watson, right? So he, uh, I think everyone knows by now kind of what's going on there. He, there's, I believe, 20 or more lawsuits filed against him for a variety of different things, uh, but he has not played for the Texans this year. He is obviously from a talent perspective, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, uh, but they have held him out and there hasn't been much clarity to my knowledge, at least around kind of uh, from the league stance or what's going to be happening, if anything, from a punishment perspective. There have been a bunch of rumors now uh, that he may be getting traded. There are other teams looking at him. There's timelines on when uh, legal proceedings would have to happen to get traded. So as someone, again, who has sat in that room on both sides, right, knowing uh, the player from the agency side and then kind of knowing what the Texans are thinking, uh, perhaps from the, the team side, what are those conversations like and what is going on there? Well, I think first from an outsider, I don't see any way Deshaun Watson plays anytime soon. And I don't understand these trade rumors because, first of all, I'm a lawyer. I have to look at everything in the lens of precedent and the precedent on sexual misconduct is pretty strong. And I think of these two cases that I've talked about Ben Roethlisberger, 2010, something happened in the back of a bar in a bathroom with a woman. He never was charged criminally and he got a six game suspension. Ezekiel Elliott, 2018, something happened with a girlfriend uh, altercation. He did not have criminal charges. He received a six-game suspension. Now, people can try to make little distinctions between this and Deshaun Watson, but the fact is, you have 22 sexual misconduct allegations on a civil side and 10 on a criminal side, unless you just don't believe any, not talking a lot, I'm talking any of these women, how does he play? Now, what I'm seeing is this kind of secret commissioner exemplist between the Texans, the league, and the player and agent. Because I, I just think what's gone on here, and I don't have inside knowledge, is that the three of the three, all three parties have agreed to this. Shut up. Don't say a word. You're not going to play, but you'll get paid. And that's what's happened these last seven weeks where we don't even see the tweet on Friday that we saw in the first couple of weeks where Deshaun Watson is not going to play. It's all kind of understood. So he's on this de facto commissioner exemplist. And there seems to be this feeling, well, if he's traded, he can play because you can't use the commissioner exemplist for someone who's not charged with a violent crime. No, you can. It is completely at the discretion of the commissioner in terms of what you put it out there for. We remember the commissioner exemplist for Adrian Peterson, who struck his son with a branch. We met her for Greg Hardy, who pushed down his old girlfriend. It can be used in every way they want it to be used. I just think Deshaun Watson, if I'm at the league, you have to look at the power of the populace, right? Are you going to put this guy out on a football field? Forget about the team, which is a whole other issue, a new team, because he's not going to play in Houston. You're going to put this guy out there in front of 30 million people with 32 complaints against him, 22 civil, 10 criminal? Really? Really? In a league that's trying to appeal to women, in a fan base that's trying to appeal to women with the breast cancer stuff, with all the, uh, come on. 
Yeah. And one of the things that I find interesting, and I'm curious your opinion on it, is the due diligence that other teams are doing, right? So uh, there's obviously been reports that the Dolphins are extremely interested in him and potentially be trying to trade for him. Uh, I think there was a report that the Eagles, I don't know if this is true or not, right? So this is all kind of hearsay at this point, but they had reportedly sent or were planning on sending kind of an investigator down there to do some digging on their own and get comfortable with the player. I don't know if this ever happened uh, with anyone specific under your watch, but knowing the league and how the league operates, what is the standard procedure for this if you're a team looking to acquire a player like this? Do you just have to get comfortable with uh, kind of where the suspension is? Do you wait for that? Are you sending people to go check into it yourselves? Kind of just walk me through that. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally you have to have all your ducks in the row and, and all the investigative process and know everything about the player you know, these are top-down decisions. These are truly CEO owner decisions. And if any of these teams is going to do something, whether it's Miami, Stephen Ross, Philadelphia, Jeffrey Lurie, that's their decisions. Because these are volatile situations with the player. When I moved to Philly, I also consulted with the Eagles. I didn't want to work, but they brought me in to help out. And uh, they brought in Michael Bick, you know, out of Leavenworth Prison. And the backlash was tough internally, corporate sales, corporate ticket departments, and externally, of course, with picketers out there holding uh, blood of dogs and things like that. Imagine it, this magnified now with Deshaun Watson. I mean, yes, you can get comfortable all you want, but you're going to look through it through a, frame, through a lens of how you want to look at it. And I think you have to step back and... I don't see Deshaun Watson playing this year. I don't see him being traded this year. I do see him being traded next year. I don't think he'll ever play in Houston again, but I think he'll be paid throughout the year. I just don't see Stephen Ross, Jeffrey Lurie, any of those people saying to their fan base, uh, we're cool with this. Yeah. Uh, And then the one last report is that there's a trade in place, but Deshaun's got to settle all these 32 seats for 22 suits. I'm like, as has been said on Twitter, that's the most leverage a plaintiff's lawyer has ever had. I, it's not going to happen. Yeah, I would, ass- I would assume that significantly hurts his chances when it comes to the legal proceedings and everything like that, knowing that there's a deadline and and all of that. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's go on to Washington, right? So Washington is uh, the most recent kind of drama across the NFL, um, which I, I think is super interesting. There was a trove of emails, I think 650,000 of them that were uh, looked at by the NFL. John Gruden was a casualty in those emails. Uh, He, you know, everyone can agree. I think that he said some things that were completely inappropriate and uh, whatever the backlash was, but he was the person that his emails were leaked. Um, And there's been a couple other things since with legal counsel at the NFL, et cetera. Are you surprised that I saw someone on Twitter, so forgive me if I don't give them credit, but I saw a tweet. I think it was by just a fan who said, um, the NFL released a 250-page report on Tom Brady and Deflategate, right? <laughs> and they released whatever it was on Ray Rice, and uh, they spent months investigating these things, et cetera. Are you surprised that we haven't seen uh, a written report released by the NFL? Yes. A lot to unpack here. Somebody wanted John Gruden buried. Somebody wanted John Gruden sent through a trapdoor and found these emails from 2011. And a couple things on those emails, there's no defense form, they're repugnant, vile, racist, homophobic, et cetera. But the timing of the first one was about DeMaury Smith, the head of the Players Association, who was up for re-election vote that next day, 
So an email from 10 years ago surfaces on the most important day of his reelection campaign. Now, is that coincidental? Who knows? But somebody probably wanted him reelected to elicit at least one empathy vote. He needed 22 votes from the player reps. He got 22 votes. And then, of course, more drip, drip, drip of the Gruden emails, and he's finally fired. But I just think whoever leaked this didn't didn't understand what was going to happen. They wanted to bury Gruden and maybe help Smith. But did they realize that they were now a renewed focus on this Washington football team investigation that was concluded in the summer? And there was news. It was a 10 million fine. They transferred the operations from the owner to his wife. And everyone kind of said, eh, it doesn't sound like a mock, but we moved on. We all moved on. And now we're like, oh, wait a minute. She did, the attorney, Beth Wilkinson, interviewed 150 hours of, of interviews. And all of a sudden, we learned that it was an oral report to the commissioner. And whatever's written is in a drawer. And this just, now it brings out, I've heard so many people tweet at me like, mafia, mafia, mafia. It's like, What? And as you just mentioned, yes, the Wells report regarding Tom Brady of deflated footballs, hundreds of pages. The Mueller report regarding Ray Rice, hundreds of pages. Back in the day, there were other reports. No report here. Why? I think it's because an owner. Have you ever it's seen a- an oral report like this? No. Yeah. Never. And I know who Beth Wilkinson is, extremely respected attorney. Now, my podcast this week, Joe, two different ones one with the lawyer representing all the women affected by this. And then two, three, four of those women reached out and two were able to make the podcast about what they experienced. Things like being told to wear high heels, no flats, things being told don't look Dan Snyder in the eye. Things like don't use certain doors to get in or out when Dan Snyder's in the hallway, don't look at him. I mean, yeah, and of course, call him Mr. Snyder. Now, you know, there's more. Yeah. And just don't hear about it. So I think it's this renewed focus on Washington. They didn't want that. And with Goodell saying, yeah, I think they've done enough. That only that only energizes people to say, what's going on? Why the duplicity? Why the double standard? And this increases a dislike for Daniel Snyder. As I mentioned, I'm a diehard Washingtonian. I told this story on Twitter. I'll tell you right now. I don't know him. We grew up in the same area. We're the same age, but I don't know him. But I know people who know him. And for instance, my friend has two girls. Dan Snyder has two girls. They had a play date. Dan Snyder goes, I'm sorry, my buddy goes to pick up his girls, gets them. Dan Snyder's pulling in. My friend says, hey, Dan, thanks for having the girls over. Had a great time. Snyder says to my friend, 50-year-old guy, it's Mr. Snyder. And I'm like, who does that? Yeah. It kind of tells you everything you need to know. Right. Yeah. Right. I think there are uh, a lot of not only Washington fans, but people around the NFL that uh, get that impression or or want to see uh, some type of change. And obviously you mentioned it earlier, a $10 million fine 
A lot of money, not really a lot of money also though in the grand grand scheme of things uh, and transferring ownership to his wife. Uh, I don't know what goes on the day-to-day there. I don't know kind of what he's involved with, but it sure seems like he is around the team or the organization a lot still, uh, specifically on game day, I know for sure. So, you know, was that their correct punishment? A lot of people don't think so, uh, but but it is what it is. The, the, the other thing I would like to ask about is uh, kind of the relationship between Bruce Allen, uh, the president of Washington football team and the league office, right? So there were some emails released between the general counsel for the NFL uh, and, and Bruce Allen that were, I would just call it buddy, buddy, right? They were just v- very friendly. Um, and there was maybe some kind of shady stuff going on around. Uh, I don't know. They, they made it sound like fines were okay to be reduced when he emailed or whatever it is, but I, I would classify it as they were just had a very, very friendly relationship. Is this commonplace around the NFL or was this uh, kind of something that we should be looking more into? Uh, why were, why was that relationship so, t- so tight between Allen and the league? Yeah, and this may surprise you and people listening, but I really was not surprised at those exchanges. Um, listen, Bruce Allen was the was the master politician. He was that way with Tampa. He was out there with Oakland. He certainly was hired in Washington to leverage those relationships. Very tight with people at the league office. Very tight in Congress. His brother was the former governor of George of um, sorry Virginia, a U.S. senator. His dad coached the Washington Redskins when I was growing up. Very political, and he leveraged those relationships, and Dan Snyder hired him to do that. I will say, full disclosure, I know Jeff Pash well. I think very highly of Jeff Pash. I think Jeff Pash is the opposite of what we just talked about with Snyder. Very down-to-earth, willing to deal with people on levels below ownership in a very common way. Uh, I like dealing with Jeff Pash. Now, was he a little bit uh, too friendly with to Washington in those exchanges? Yeah, but everybody's searching for that edge with the league office. And Allen was doing what he was hired to do. The comment that got people upset was when Allen said he's lowering a player's salary. Pash says the Lord's work. Yeah, I mean, if it was the union rep talking to an agent and they were talking about squeezing the team for every last dollar, yeah, you'd hear the Lord's work. It's an adversarial business. You know, it's players versus teams. So again, that's the how the sausage is made. That's maybe not so pretty. It's a political, it's a dirty, not dirty is the wrong word. It's a political business with kind of a seamy underbelly that doesn't get shown a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said before, uh, I'll be certainly be listening to the podcast. I know, uh, I I'm sure they will be, uh, excellent kind of, uh, getting your opinion and also hearing the women speak on that front also. Uh, so we're going to close up here before I let everyone go, where can they send them to find more of your information? <laughs> Thanks so much. And, and thank you for directing your audience to my newsletter. I'll start with that. Andrew-brand.com is how you get the newsletter. It's free to your inbox. It's weekly. It's every Sunday morning. I call it the Sunday seven. And again, it's kind of a look inside my content, but also my thoughts that don't make it to other areas, even on Twitter. And I do write this column for Sports Illustrated. It comes out either every once a week, every two weeks. You'll find it uh, through SI.com. My podcast you just mentioned is the business of sports with Andrew Brandt. Now, uh, on the social side, I have... And you know, Andrew Brandt, Twitter, Andrew Brandt, two on Instagram. I do a clubhouse room every uh, Wednesday morning, too. You find me on clubhouse at ADB 719. And then the new gig I hired, we haven't even talked about. <laughs> I started a couple of weeks ago. 
Amazon hired me, or the NFL and Amazon, to co-stream Thursday Night Football on Twitch. And as we record this today, I'm getting ready to do my old team, the Packers versus the Cardinals tonight. So if you go to Twitch on Thursday nights, the Andrew Brandt Live channel, uh, you can just listen to me talk about the game, you know, my version of the Manning cast. So uh, I think I've got everything there that my own. And then, of course, I got a full time job, too, at Villanova University, uh, by the way. Yeah, I got that, too. But those are all my my place for someone uh, that is older and has had a lot of experience. You're pretty good on social media. You got all the platforms. You're on Twitch. I'm not even on Twitch. That's pretty solid. Yeah, I'm just learning about Twitch. Um, I'm getting there, you know, and, and listen, Joe, I see your stuff. You're decidedly more hip. <laughs> you are decidedly more hip. I don't know I. about that. I, I would like to ask uh, one more question, and this is kind of something that I like to ask a lot of people uh, that have a lot of experience in, in kind of a certain industry and have, uh, you know, done really well and built up kind of a career in that space. And the question would be, with everything you know now, right, if you were starting over, if you were 20 years old, 21, we'll call it 25 when you graduated law school again, or would you even go to law school, right? What would you do career-wise and, and what would be that first step in something that interests you with everything you know now? Great question. I'll answer in a little different way and maybe I can relate it to what I did. I tell young people all the time, find what makes you different find your special sauce. And again, I think the difference that I had growing up came through when I first started working as an intern. Like I really wanted to look into the different side of sports than every other kid. Every other kid's focusing on stats and their trading cards and who's going to win the game and who's the best team and the coach. I'm like, okay, what makes teams and, and athletes so successful? What's their special sauce? So Find your special sauce. And I would tell people, and I did some of this, and I do it now today, even beyond my columns and my newsletter, write, write, W-R-I-T-E, write. You will stand out in the crowd if you have written about something. People tell me all the time when we work for a team, what do you want to do? Uh, I want to work for, I don't know, marketing. Like, what do you want to do? I want to work. Find what you want to do. Don't tell anyone a general answer and get into it. Go narrow, go deep, get into it. Write about it, blog about it, podcast about it. I talked to a young person the other day. He's like, yeah, I do a podcast. Only 30 people listen. I'm like, you are ahead of your peers. Great. There's 30 people listening to your podcast. All those other people, they don't have a podcast. They don't have 30 people. So, Find a way to make yourself different than all the other kids. People tell me all the time, I want to be an agent. Okay, let's role play. I'm a player. You're my, you want to be my agent. Why you? And it's amazing how people can't even answer that. They can't answer that, but they want to be an agent. I'm like, you got to be able to answer these things. I know you're young. I know you don't have life experience, but I would have told myself, Find a way to be different at a young age. You can do that. People do that. How do you do it? One thing is writing. One thing is blogging. One thing is podcasting. One thing is becoming familiar with an area that you're going to be asked about for, for potential future employment. Know it. Know it. Because a lot of your peers won't know it. They won't go the extra mile. So 
find a way to differentiate yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's really good advice. I, uh, you know, I started my newsletter, which is daily, uh, which is not easy per se, right? It's, you know, you have to uh, obviously do it every day, but the consistency is, is, is tough sometimes. But I would have sworn before I started it that the best way to learn about a topic or hear different perspectives was to just have a conversation like we're having, right? But also now I believe that writing might be that best way. And it's just really getting your thoughts down and, and running through things in your head uh, and just having some time to put the pen to paper. So I totally agree with that. I think that's great advice. Um, and, and Andrew, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I really appreciate you coming on uh, and, and we'll have to do it again sometime. Thank you, Joe. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for promoting my little newsletter and your daily is so great for the industry. Appreciate all you do. Of course. Thanks.